I'm 51 years old. And to tell you what kind of world we live in, it's a, it's a, it's a good thing to live in a modern world. In 51 years, I have had only four times that I have feared for my life. Now, there have been times that I've said, and I thought we were going to die. But I mean, really, when you're just saying nothing out loud, and internally you're saying, this may be it. Four times. Each one of those four times was on a large body of water in some sort of vessel that I thought this is it and in those moments I recall passages of scripture like the Jonah passage that we read today like the passage that was just read where Jesus is asleep in the front of the boat the passage where there's a storm and Jesus comes walking on the water there's a lot in the scripture about storms and being at sea. We come to one of those texts today in Acts chapter 27. Acts chapter 27, if you'll turn in your copy of God's word and follow along as I read. This is the word of the living God. When it was decided that we would sail for Italy, they proceeded to deliver Paul and some of the other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. And embark embarking in an Adramidian ship, which was about to sail to the regions along the coast of Asia, we put out to sea, accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian of Thessalonica. The next day we put in at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul with consideration and allowed him to go to his friends and receive care. From there, we put out to sea and sailed under the shelter of Cyprus because the winds were contrary. When we had sailed through the sea along the coast of Sicilia and Pamphylia, we landed at Myra and Lycia. There, the centurion found an Alexandrian ship sailing for Italy. And he put us aboard it. When we sailed slowly for many days and with difficulty had arrived at Canidas, since the wind did not permit us to go farther, we sailed under the shelter of Crete off Salone. Salone. And with difficulty sailing past it, we came to a place called Fair Havens, near which was the city of Lasea. When considerable time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous since even the feast was already over, Paul began to admonish them and said to them, Men, I perceive that the voyage will certainly be with damage and great loss, not only of cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. But the centurion was more persuaded by the pilot and the captain of the ship than was by what was being said by Paul. Because the harbor was not suitable for wintering, the majority reached a decision to put out to sea from there. 
If somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete, facing southwest and northwest, and spend the winter there. When a moderate south wind came up, supposing that they had attained their purpose, they weighed anchor and began sailing along Crete, close inshore. But before long, they rushed down from the land a violent wind called Uraquila. And when the ship was caught in it and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and let ourselves be driven along, running under the shelter of a small island called Clauda. We were scarcely able to get the ship's uh, to get the ship's rudder under control. After they hoisted it up, they after they hoisted it up, they used supporting cables in girding the ship. And fearing that they might run aground on the shallows of Sirtis, they let down the sea anchor and in this way let themselves be driven along. The next day they were being violently storm-tossed. They began to jettison the cargo. And on the third day they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. Since neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small storm was assailing us. From then on, all hope of our being saved was gradually abandoned. When they had gone a long time without food, then Paul stood up in their midst and said, Men, you ought to have followed my advice and not to have set sail from Crete and incurred this damage and loss. Yet now I urge you to keep your courage up from there, for there will no loss of life among you. There will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. Verse 23, for this very night, an angel of God to whom I belong and whom I serve stood before me saying, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar and behold, God has granted you all those who are sailing with you. Therefore, keep up your courage, men, for I believe God that it will turn out exactly as I have been told, but we must run aground on a certain island. Verse 27. But when the 14th night came, as we were being driven about in the Adriatic Sea, about midnight, the sailors began to surmise that they were approaching some land. They took soundings and found it to be 20 fathoms. And a little, little farther, they took another sounding and found it to be 15 fathoms. Fearing that we might run aground somewhere on the rocks, they cast four anchors from the stern and wished for daybreak. But as the sailors were trying to escape from the ship, they had let down the ship's boat into the sea on the pretense of intending to lay out anchors from the bow. Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men remain in the ship, you yourselves cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it fall away. Verse 33. Until the day was about to dawn, Paul was encouraging them all to take some food, saying, today is the 14th day that you have been constantly watching and going without eating, having taken nothing. Therefore, I encourage you to take some food, 
for this is for your preservation. For not a hair from the head of any of you will perish. Having said this, he took some bread and gave thanks to God in the presence of all. And he broke it and began to eat. All of them were encouraged and they themselves also took food. All of us in the ship were 276 persons. When we had eaten enough, they began to lighten the ship by throwing out the wheat into the sea. Verse 39, when day came, they could not recognize the land, but they did observe a bay with a beach and they resolved to drive the ship onto it if they could. And casting off the anchors, they left them in the sea while at the same time they were loosening the ropes from the rudders and hoisting the foresail to the wind. They were headed for the beach, but striking a reef where two, where two seas met, they ran the vessel aground and the prow struck fast and remained immovable. But the stern began to be broken up by the force of the waves. The soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners so that none of them would swim away and escape. But the centurion, wanting to bring Paul safely through, kept them from their intention and commanded that those who could swim should jump overboard first and get to land. And the rest should follow, some on planks and others on various things from the ship. And so it happened that they all were brought safely to land. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We pray today that you would apply it to our hearts. God, that you would be our teacher. By your Holy Spirit, we would be edified and sanctified. We pray that you'd hide the preacher behind the cross of Christ. It's for your kingdom's sake that we pray this. Amen. Paul is headed to Rome. He's going because God has decreed it. And then God revealed it to Paul that it would come to pass. Then by the power and authority of God, employing the lesser and subservient power and authority of Festus, Upon advice of Agrippa and others, Paul is headed to Rome. A lot has gone into this journey to Rome. Paul, along with the others who were going to Rome as prisoners, is placed in the charge of Julius, a Roman centurion. We're told that he is of the Augustan cohort. This may be named after Caesar Augustus. It seems clear that Paul immediately has favor with Julius the centurion. Perhaps Julius was present when Paul made his case, made his plea before Festus and Agrippa. Perhaps Julius knew Paul by reputation. Maybe he thought that Paul had some wealth and he figured that he might gain by being kind to Paul, that there might be some profit in him. Whatever the case, whatever the reasoning, Paul found favor in Julius's eyes. Paul was now among other prisoners. The text tells us in verse 37 that there was a total of 276 aboard the ship. We're not exactly how many, uh, exactly sure how many were soldiers. How many were just traveling companions and how many were actual prisoners? 
But we know that there were others. There were those who were only traveling companions. They were not prisoners. And we know that, first of all, because this is the last of the we texts in the book of Acts. The we texts. If you remember those we texts, like this one, make it clear that the author, Dr. Luke, was on this journey, that he participated in these events. We also know from the text that Aristarchus was there and from the context that Trophimus was also a companion of Paul's. They were making this journey with him. There could have been others, but there were prisoners. Paul was a prisoner, but he was a yet to be convicted, yet to be condemned prisoner going to Rome to make an appeal to Caesar. And there may have been others on this journey who were yet to be convicted, who were going to make an appeal. But surely there were also those on this journey who were prisoners already condemned. They were going to Rome to fulfill the growing need for people to fight in the arenas. There they would face trained fighting men or wild beasts and they would meet their death for the entertainment of the Roman crowds. We see that Paul, Paul, even as a prisoner, was shown favor. And we see this favor shown Paul by Julius in that when they landed in Sidon, Paul was allowed to visit friends and to receive care from them. We don't know who these friends were. Perhaps there was a church there already. We know that early on there was a church in this area and just by the way, in every place that is mentioned here, early on by the third century, there were churches that we know of. Whenever, whatever initially drew Julius to Paul, whatever reason he gave him this favor, it seems clear that by the end of this chapter, Paul had risen in Julius's eyes and probably in the eyes of everyone else who was on board this ship. We have in the text a term that is used several times that we should address so that we understand what's being said. The, the term is sailing under, sailing under, and it's mentioned several islands, sailing under an island. We find this in verses 4, 7, and 16. The King James says, we sailed under the island of Crete, for example. The, US, the USB, I'm going USB for some reason. The ESV, the ESV says we sailed under the lee of the island. And the New American Standard says we sailed under the shelter of the island. When we understand sailing under these islands, sailing under the lee, this is not a direction. Sailing under an island does not mean that they sail on the south side of the island. It has to do with the wind. Sailing under the island, sailing under the lee of the island, means that they sail so that the island is protecting the ship from the wind. So the NASB saying we sail under the shelter of the island is very clear to us. There's much in this text that is said about the wind. They sailed under the protection of the island because of the wind. The wind is mentioned many times as a violent, violent thing. Verse 7 says they sailed slowly. 
They sailed slowly. And this sailing slowly could be because there was no wind. I don't think that's the case. Sailing slowly could be caused by a very heavily loaded or heavy laden ship. But I think it is more likely that they sailed slowly because of a strong headwind, a strong wind that they were sailing into. And then we read in verse 14 of this wind called the Uroquilo. Uroquilo. The Uroquilo is a strong wind that would blow from the northeast direction. Now you may have heard of a nor'easter, which is really just a mispronunciation of a northeastern. But a nor'easter, and that's what the old timers that I grew up with always called it, a nor'easter. And in Texas and in Louisiana where I grew up, we don't know anything really about a nor'easter. We, we don't know anything about this cold wind. But some of you are from those places that experience Washington, D.C. is one of those places where you'll get a nor'easter. Boston, New York, Philadelphia, those those. States in the northeast, and that's not why it's called a nor'easter. It's called a nor'easter because it blows from that direction. But those states in the northeast, they know about this. And the Uroquilo is the in the Mediterranean region is what we would call a nor'easter here. The point is that this is very bad weather. These are terrible storms. Verse 9, we read that much time has passed. Much time has passed. So much time that the feast was over. Even the feast had ended, we're told. By the end of October or the beginning of November, the seas would be completely impassable. Absolutely unsailable. No captain, no pilot would take to the sea at the end of October, beginning of November. But these events occurred... Not quite there. Late September, the fast that is mentioned that was over, I think I might have said feast, but the fast that was over is the Day of Atonement. And that fast would have ended September 24th. September 24th is the end of September. Sailing the sea at this time would be a gamble. So Paul makes the case that they should not set sail. Then, as you might expect, when a prisoner slash passenger makes the case that you shouldn't sail, Paul was ignored. The centurion, the ship's captain, and the ship's pilot decided not to listen to Paul. He was outvoted as it were. After all, Paul is an academic. Uh, a bookish, nerdy-looking guy, perhaps. Why would these professional men of the sea pay any attention to Paul or listen to what he might have to say? Why would they want his weather advisor? What they may not have known and what we may forget is that Paul is a very seasoned traveler. He had a lot of Frequent sailor miles. He's traveled a lot. And if you'll remember, he wrote three times I have been shipwrecked. And that was written before this. So Paul not only was a seasoned traveler, he knew something about being 
in shipwrecks. Remember three missionary journeys worth of sailing he had under his belt. Paul was giving good advice from an experienced perspective. And as it turned out, just as Paul told them, they should have listened. Two weeks at sea, two weeks being driven along. The idea there, and as we read the text, if you notice, this is not that they are sailing. Sailing is like we're heading in a direction. We're, we're, we're in control. There's no control here. They're just being driven along wherever this violent wind will take them. And this is a long time. Reading this section of scripture reminded me of stories that I used to hear when I was in the gas and oil sector. <laughs> Those stories, usually it was they were told at breakfast on the morning before we got on the helicopter or the boat to go offshore. That's when you tell those stories. And then everybody wants to say, well, I remember the first time I was in a helicopter that went down. I remember asking the questions like, why well, was the first time you were in a helicopter that went down, not the last time you were in a helicopter? <laughs> I remember one very vivid story about these men on an offshore platform that caught fire. And they had to escape in the lifeboat. And if you're thinking about a little dinghy, that's not what it is. It's completely enclosed. You get in through a hatch and close that hatch so that you're not just in the water. You're rolling and, and bouncing around wherever. And they were out there for days and the story was gruesome. But as I read this text. It seems that Paul's experience on board this ship, this time at sea for Paul, was the worst thing. There are things that we learn from this text. And the first thing that we see, all the detail. I, I mentioned a few weeks back as we came toward the end of Acts that there would be a lot of minutia, a lot of detailed stuff. And there's a lot of detail here and it is all verifiable and reliable. This is not vague stuff. This is not we sailed by an, an island. We went to a place. The places are named. The islands are listed. This has great detail. And the point here is a point that we've made before. The Holy Scriptures of the Old and New Testament are the word of the living God and are reliable to be trusted in all areas to which they speak. I want to pause here. I think I have a short sermon, so we're going to add a little bit right here. I, when we say things like that, the Holy Scripture can be trusted in all areas to which they speak. You may be thinking things like, well, in my place of business or in my particular line of expertise, the Bible doesn't address um, a math teacher's job or the Bible doesn't address an engineer's work. The Bible has much to say, no matter what walk of life you're in, no matter what you do, the Bible instructs you in how to do it. It's not a math book. It's not an engineering manual, but it speaks to everyone in every walk of life, in every employment. But I've said here it's to be entrusted in all areas, which it speaks to, because here it speaks much about sailing. Now, in this chapter, we don't find a sailing manual. 
We don't find an instruction book for safe travels in the Adriatic or Mediterranean seas. But what we read here is historically accurate. It is verifiably factual concerning the time, the state of the seas, the places mentioned. And because the Bible can be trusted in these things, there should absolutely be no doubt that the Bible can be trusted in all things. There's still to this day place, a place where you can go called St. Paul's Bay, where Paul landed, where, where this took place on the island of Malta. You can go to St. Paul's Shoal. I, I saw a church there called St. Paul's Shipwreck Church. These are real places. They're really there. Sailors and yachtsmen have gone and retraced Paul's journey, retraced this path, and then written books, and they found much of what is spoken here, much of these circumstances here in Acts 27, to still be applicable today. There's so much about this that is verifiably factual. This chapter is one more proof of the reliability and trustworthiness of the Bible. So in the first place, this text teaches us that we can believe the Holy Scriptures. In the second place, we learn that in the worst storm, God is still keeping His promise. He is still accomplishing His work. In the worst storm, God is still keeping his promise. He's still accomplishing his work. It might have been easy for Paul to forget in the middle of the sea, in a terrible storm, when, when the morale is, as we read in verse 20, all our hope of being saved was gradually abandoned. In that place, in that time, it might have been easy to forget that God is in control. It might not have felt like God was in control, but God was still working. They hadn't seen the sun nor the stars for days, according to verse 20. But we know, we know the sun was still there. We know the sun was still shining, just like always. It was only obscured from their view by the clouds of the storm. The sun was there, but it was obscured. We would do well to remember this. When we are in the midst of a terrible storm, whether that storm be actually on a large body of water, as some of us have experienced, or whether it's a metaphorical storm in our lives, we would do well to remember when we are tempted to think that God is not there, that God is not listening, that God has abandoned us, that He's not working that his promises may be forgotten. We should remember that God is working. He is still accomplishing his purpose. He still remembers his promise. The words of 2 Peter come to mind. When we think that God has forgotten his promise, we remember God is not slack concerning his promise as some men count slackness but is faithful usward. He is faithful to us. God is faithful. 
He said that Paul would testify of him in Rome. And he is bringing that to pass. In the worst storm, God is still keeping his promise. God is still accomplishing his work. Thirdly, we note that God's promise. God's promise does not exclude means. God's providence does not excuse inactivity. I snuck two in on you together there. God's promise does not exclude means and God's providence does not excuse inactivity. God has promised that Paul would go to Rome. Here in chapter 27, that promise is repeated by the angel. And some may think, well, since God promised it, the promise was repeated. God is working. We just made that point. Can't we just sit back and relax and coast on into Rome? The scripture does not support that kind of thinking, Christian. God is working. His promise that all would be saved, that not one life would be lost. He is going to fulfill that. But there's so much activity that is happening here on this ship. Throwing cargo overboard, throwing tackle overboard, throwing the wheat overboard, dropping anchors off the bow, cutting the ropes from the, from the ships when the sailors were trying to escape. There's so much activity. We Christians have no warrant to believe that God's promise gives us a pass on the work that has to be done. God accomplishes his will. God accomplishes his purpose and plan. But God uses means. God uses means. He uses the efforts, the labors of his people. He uses the actions and decisions of lost men and women. And God even uses sinful deeds that were done with no thought of him to bring about his will, to bring about his purpose, his work. We have no excuse to sit back and coast. Christians, we need to stop saying stupid things like let go and let God. God has not called us to inactivity. God has called us to work. We're not saved by works. No, we are saved for works. Yes, God has called us to work. God has called us to walk. How many times in scripture do we read this word picture of walk? And what does it mean? It is to live and to work and to do in a manner that is worthy of Christ's calling. We are called to work. Brothers and sisters, then let us labor. Let us not grow weary in well-doing. Let us stir one another up to love and good deeds. God's promise should not cause inactivity. God's promise should inspire us, should, should light a fire in us to labor, to be a part, to see his work done. God's promise does not exclude means and God's providence does not excuse inactivity. And then finally, we note in the text that 
leadership, and words of positive encouragement are of great value. Paul shows here that he is truly a leader of men. There's a ship captain, a centurion, a number of soldiers. How many men in this particular situation would have had title or position that outranked Paul? Almost all of them. Paul did not hold a place of leadership, but he was a leader. Let me add here that Paul did not usurp authority in order to be a leader, but he simply was a leader. He spoke as a leader. He spoke words of positive encouragement. Look again, verses 33 to 37. Until the day was about to dawn, Paul was encouraging them to take some food, saying, today is the 14th day that you have been constantly watching and going without eating, having taken nothing. Therefore, I encourage you to take some food, for this is for your preservation. See, encouraging them to take food would, would build them physically. But then he says, this is for your preservation. Not a hair from your head of any of you will perish. He speaks words of encouragement. Verse 35, having said this, he took bread and gave thanks to God in the presence of all. And he broke it and began to eat. All of them were encouraged and they ate. They themselves took food. Verse 37, all of us in the ship were 276 persons. Paul was not obligated to say these things. The morale of the other men on the ship was not Paul's responsibility. But because Paul is a leader of men, he made it his business to speak words of encouragement. He encouraged them to take nourishment. He told them that they would all be saved. We shouldn't underestimate the power of words. We shouldn't underestimate the negative power of negative words, but we shouldn't underestimate the positive power of words of encouragement. Now, there's much that is said about being a positive encourager. But let's note here that Paul was not a positive speaker at the expense of the truth. He didn't speak words of positivity and ignore the truth. He was honest. He was honest when he told them they should have listened to him. He was honest about the situation. We're in a dire place here. He was honest when he told the, the, the soldiers, if you let those sailors get away, then we have no promise of being saved. He was honest. But without compromising the truth, he encouraged them. And he was an example to them. He himself took food. And before he ate the food, he prayed and gave thanks to God. The text tells us that he did this in the presence of all. This is encouragement by example. Beloved, are you too caught up in your own experience to think about others? Do you seize opportunities to be an encouragement to others? As I look out, some of you are encouragers. I thank God for the edification and the encouragement that you bring 
to this congregation and to me personally. I hope the rest of us will learn from Paul and from your example to be an encouragement. We're coming quickly to the end of Acts. As we come, especially in these last chapters, we have seen the providential hand of God on every page, even on every line. What a reminder that God was leading Paul along and that God still leads his children along. Next time we move to chapter 28, we're coming to the close, but we'll spend some time there in this chapter. We'll tackle the often misunderstood text about Paul and the viper. We'll consider Paul's time on the island of Malta where they shipwrecked and then his arrival in Rome. So we look forward to this and we pray God's blessing. God, we come to you now asking that you would apply your word to our hearts. Use it to edify your church, to sanctify the saints. And God, we pray for the salvation of sinners. We pray that you bring our family, our loved ones, our children to salvation. It's in Christ's name we ask this. Amen.